So far, our peoples are virtually strangers to one another. For over a generation, nuclear strategy has been governed by the theory of mutual assured destruction. We've seen each other through distorted masks. President Reagan turned 30 years of strategic thinking on its head. It is that we embark on a program to counter the awesome Soviet missile threat that we could intercept and destroy strategic ballistics. And when his proposal for a space-age defense system against Soviet missiles... A revolutionary change in U.S. nuclear strategy. This video has been declared unclassified by the Department of Defense. Balance of terror at which the two superpowers have held each other's civilian population. United Nations Security Council met in emergency And now two great nations stand armed and ready to go to war. Upset the balance of terror. And yet the balance of terror. Let me share with you a vision of the future which offers hope. We haven't really met. Summer, 1982, Moscow. I was working in uh, Gospel Radio of the USSR, which was at that time the state-run uh, television radio company, and the only one, actually. Pavel Korchagin was a producer in the international department, the part of Gostela Radio that worked with foreign film companies visiting the USSR. He was young, ambitious, professional, and in late summer, he got a vague assignment to help some Americans about to visit. We were told that uh, we had to produce some entertainment material about the Soviet Union, about how it was good to live in the Soviet Union, and this entertainment material will be broadcast on big screens at the international uh, exhibition of uh, technology in uh, California. Korchagin didn't know. Because Korchagin, there was, uh, you know, he, he mustn't know. Enrikis Yuskevichis was a vice president of Gos Teleradio in 1982. He wasn't Pavel Korchagin's direct boss, but he was about to change Korchagin's life by greenlighting something radical, a two-way satellite link between the U.S. and the USSR. But not just any satellite link, a rock festival. See, Yuskevich just knew he probably shouldn't say yes to this collaboration between Cold War enemies, but he did anyway. Then, in a true Soviet broadcaster ninja move, he took off on vacation, leaving only vague instructions behind. Again, this was radical, but the person tasked with making it happen, that person didn't have to know just how radical. So if he would know, he had to go and tell to his bosses. Bosses will tell, you know, to bigger bosses, and finally it would be closed. In 1982, the U.S. and USSR were enemies, their governments barely on speaking terms. But this project would connect ordinary citizens to each other, using satellites in outer space high over the Iron Curtain. Then maybe their governments would follow. It was still a vague dream, cooked up by an astronaut, some Americans who also believed in things like telepathy and extrasensory perception, and their friend in Moscow, an unemployed Soviet guy named Joseph Golden. I understood that this is my profession. Yes. My new profession. Yes. Yeah, We've to create a new channel of communications. Yes. And it's a profession. We are making space bridges real. Yes. Joseph Golden was busy making space bridges real 
mostly by irritating Goss Teleradio producers, people like Pavel Karchagin. He was running around with this idea that let's give the people uh, an opportunity to talk to each other. He was a dreamer, and uh, his dream was that if we put something like a big screen on the Red Square, it'll solve all the problems of the world immediately. Of course, it was very naive to think about that. This naive notion was now Korchagin's actual assignment, bring humanity together with TV. Korchagin may have been skeptical of Golden's idea, but he found himself warming to the Americans who turn up in Moscow to make Golden's dream a reality. There was some kind of fire burning in them, you know, and uh, we wanted to be part of that, that fire. The question was how to get close to the fire without getting burned. From Showcase, a production of PRX's Radiotopia, this is Space Bridge. I'm Julia Barton in New York. And I'm Charles Maines in Moscow. We continue our story of DIY diplomacy at the height of the Cold War. Support for this podcast comes from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security at carnegie.org. Chapter One, Hot Tub Diplomacy. By 1980, the Cold War was the realm of professionals. Strategists, analysts, the military, spies, and squadrons of professional diplomats. They helped negotiate major arms control deals. They handled cultural and academic exchanges. But by the early 80s, diplomats had been shoved out of the way in America. At least, that's how it felt to a mid-career foreign service officer named Joseph Montville. Because we had people in the Reagan administration who were convinced we would prevail in a nuclear war. Montville had been stationed as a diplomat and intelligence officer in the Middle East. But now he was back in Washington. The Soviet specialists from various agencies would meet and have lunch together, brown bag, eating their tuna sandwiches, and they would discuss the targets that should be destroyed in the Soviet Union. He was more than a little disillusioned. He once thought the job of diplomacy was to help resolve conflicts. But now, that didn't seem to happen anywhere. My experience in the field persuaded me that there were incredible limits on normal diplomacy. It just wasn't moving. Montville felt stuck. And his marriage was falling apart, too. He and his wife started meeting with a neighbor in Washington who was a psychotherapist. And Montville had a revelation. The more he explained what was happening to us as a family, uh, I came to understand politics. Maybe psychoanalytics could help professional diplomats do a better job. Montville started doing some research. And coincidentally, as one might say, depending on your view of the universe, he also met a guy named Jim Hickman. Hickman worked at a countercultural organization out in California called the Esalen Institute. And who knew why, but the Esalen people were obsessed with the USSR. 
Montville was invited to a seminar at Esalen. The draw was more than just professional. Hot tubs and naked people. And um, in this case, all expenses would be paid and they'd be drawing on whatever I had to offer analytically and politically and trying to make sense of how we can shift out of the, the sterility of the U.S.-Soviet relationship in, in an era of very, very significant nuclear threat. And uh, yeah, no, I, I, only an idiot would say no. Montville finds out that when these hedonists were in the USSR, they met everyone from psychics to high officials. Were they spies for one side or the other? If so, they weren't very good ones. But they seemed to get a lot done, more than officials in Washington, where most diplomats were spinning their wheels. And then Montville has another revelation. I was asked to say, why did I come? And I said, without much thought on it, well, you can say I can do track one diplomacy, and what you're doing is track two diplomacy. That was it. Track two diplomacy. This was not a phrase in use. Monfield just made it up on the spot. But the idea was simple. Track one diplomacy was, you know, diplomacy, with diplomats, dignitaries, heads of states. And therefore, by extension, track two diplomacy was an amateur effort. Citizens doing their part to repair international relations. Monfil wrote up his insights on track two diplomacy in an article he co-authored for Foreign Policy magazine. It was called Foreign Policy According to Freud, a title that reflected Monfil's growing interest in applying concepts of psychoanalysis to diplomacy. See, Monfil, he argued that ordinary people could help professional diplomats resolve conflicts, because when ordinary people get together, the natural connections they make help soften fear of the enemy. Then political leaders, well, they have safer zones around them to take risks. And here's where things get strange and, okay, maybe just a little Freudian for me. Monfield's article, well, it turns out it was published by my father, also named Charles Maines. This was in 1981. My dad had recently been appointed editor of Foreign Policy magazine. And I have to say, I didn't know any of this before I met Montville at a conference in Russia. It's great to meet you, really. And likewise, likewise. Uh, it's, a, no, it's, it's an emotional effect, because I, you know, I watched as your father declines. So. My dad, he died from cancer more than a decade ago. Yeah, it was t- that was a tough time. Um, and uh, yeah, he would miss it. The article Monfield wrote, and that my father published, and I suppose maybe even titled, it went on to play a big role in introducing the idea of so-called citizen diplomacy to the D.C. foreign policy crowd. Meanwhile, Monfield's growing relationship with Esalen helped create the impression that Track 2 diplomacy, that was here to stay. Being an active duty foreign service officer from the Bureau of Intelligence and Research and embracing everything we were talking about, probably was interpreted by a lot of people that the State Department supports this. It's like there was a whole blessing now from the Washington establishment. The Esalen Institute had Montville's blessing in its mind when it sent Jim Hickman to the USSR in 1982, where one of his missions was to propose using cutting-edge technology to build a link, a space bridge, to an upcoming event called the US Festival. 
But how good are ordinary people at high-stakes cultural diplomacy? We're about to find out. Chapter 2. The First Step. September 3rd, 1982. Early this morning, rock music fans were here by the thousands. The NBC Nightly News shows thousands of rock fans stampeding. They decided they could wait no longer and charge past helpless security guards. This is Glen Helen State Park outside San Bernardino, California, and the US Festival is getting underway. For the first time in rock history, all performances will be projected above the stage on vast diamond vision screens visible in the daytime as well as at night. The festival is the pet project of Apple Computer's co-founder Steve Wozniak. He and the other organizers thought it would be cool for the Soviet Union to participate by contributing its own acts. Soviet musicians would beam in by satellite and perform for the American crowds between sets. And then a Soviet audience could enjoy Pat Benatar whomever in return a rock musical exchange. Now this is all news to Gostella Radio producer Pavel Korchagin. Last he'd heard this event was merely a technology festival. And now he saw one huge problem. Rock music was taboo in the Soviet Union of 1982. Because rock and roll, it was not officially, you know, like officially banned, but it was frowned upon and uh, not allowed to be on the air. Now, you had to be pretty dedicated to know who was good in Soviet rock, since the music had no public concerts or system of distribution. Pavel Korchagin figures out that his assignment is to find rock musicians in Moscow, bring them to a studio at Gostela Radio, and then beam their performances to America. So he's more than a little freaked out. Over on the American side, nerves are fraying for a different reason. They can't even get a phone line through to the Soviet Union. I'm working through an American operator. Her name was Julia. This is Anya Kucharova, a Russian-American interpreter who's about to undertake an epic phone call from a sweltering trailer at the US Festival. In those days, you had to book a phone line between the two countries weeks in advance. No one had thought to do that. I said, Julia, you have to help us. This is for world peace. We have to get through. I've been talking to you all day. She said, well, I can't open up that line. It's kind of for emergencies, and we have to keep it open for other people. I said, this is an emergency. It took 12 hours of trying, but Kucharova finally convinced the American and then the Soviet operator to patch a line through to Gostila Radio. But then there was no one around to pick up the phone there on a summer night except a dvornik, a security guard. He said, The guard eventually found someone on the team of Pavel Korchagin, who was desperately ransacking his workplace for tapes of underground Soviet rock acts. He needed to find bands good enough to stage for a crowd of Americans while also making sure they weren't hippies and thus piss off his bosses. And he lucked out when he found a stash of tapes hidden by a young editor at Gostela Radio. In his uh, edit room, there were these floors which you could uh, lift, you know, the, uh, this 
как сказать эти вот флоборс, because there was a lot of wires underneath and so on and so forth, and it was a usual place to hide, you know, these tapes with the with the band rock and roll music. Finally, it's time for the first connection between the US Festival and Moscow. The satellite time is booked, and it's costing Steve Wozniak a fortune. Moscow is told to connect as soon as the talking heads get off the stage in California. But the band has started late, and they run late. The Soviets are waiting on their side, ready to send their signal to the giant screens in California. Finally, the band finishes its objectively great performance. It's time. Legendary music promoter Bill Graham takes the stage. In a few minutes, on the uh, screens to your left and right, they're going to attempt to connect with a rock and roll group far, far away, behind the Iron Curtain. That's Graham's voice in a recent documentary called The Us Generation. Bill Graham presents the link as if a Soviet rock group will show up right away. But that's not what happens. To please Soviet television authorities, test the connection, and maybe buy Pavel Korchagin some more time to line up a suitable rock act, the plan is to have two Americans in Moscow introduce the link. One of them is Rick Lukens of the Us Festival. The other is Jim Hickman of the Esalen Institute. There's a portly Soviet announcer with them and some potted ferns. And this was our suggestion. Let's do a little video of Moscow to show everybody what it looks like. So we went around video and da-da-da, and we put that up. Jim Hickman's Moscow travelogue then appears on giant screens above the bewildered nighttime crowds in San Bernardino. Until suddenly, the screen goes dark. Then three words appear. Satellite transmission lost. You feel about this Russia hookup? Have you heard about that? That's Bill Graham backstage. He stops for a moment to ponder this Russia hookup. He grimaces. It's probably bullshit. You don't think it's going to work? So the first link was kind of a flop. But it wasn't the only one planned during the three-day US Festival. There was an even bigger Space Bridge connection taking place the next day. And that's when Jim Hickman and everyone else found out just what the Soviet production team could accomplish. Hickman and Lukens arrived back at Gostelaradio at four in the morning, Moscow time. And we went in, and there was this incredible studio set up with banners, US, USSR, and, and they had beach balls, and there were kids everywhere throwing beach balls up and down and yelling and everything. It was like unbelievable. They had created this whole environment overnight. Yuli Guzman, a Soviet film producer who'd been roped into the project by his friend Joseph Golden, had assembled the Soviet audience by plucking kids from top universities and theater institutes. The ones with the best clothes got to be in the studio. And they'd been waiting all night for this moment. And now, in three, two, one. 
At seven in the morning in Moscow, it's finally time for Soviet counterculture, or at least a version of it sanctioned by Soviet authorities, to make its debut in the USA. The band's actually called CV and includes a couple members of Sunday, but whatever. None of the Americans here quite know what's going on. The whole idea is for Soviet and American musicians to exchange songs. And in this film shot in the Gostela Radio studio, we see the Soviet rockers stop on cue. Then on a big screen comes the broadcast from the US. A man bounds onto the California stage He's wearing white pants, black shirt. Oh my God, it's... Eddie Money. As Eddie Money belts it out, pacing the hot California stage, his Soviet audience back in Moscow is electrified. His skinny white tie billows in the wind, matching his glorious white pants. He thinks he's in love. Eddie's audience in the Goss Teleradio studio sits on the floor swaying and clapping, their hands above their heads. It's way too early, but these guys are blissed out, almost mad with delirium. Soon it's time for the USSR to show off its greatest pop diva to America. Ala Pugachova is waiting in the wings. Now imagine Barbara Streisand, Cher, Stevie Nicks, Madonna, all rolled into one. That might account for a quarter of the influence of Ala Pugachova in the USSR in the early 80s. Somehow, the Space Bridge producers had persuaded her to come to Gosteleradio in the wee hours of the morning. Yeah, it was surprised that she showed up. And she was without makeup, and so no one could recognize her properly. And uh, of course she wanted, uh, there was a unique opportunity for, for her to be heard on the other side of the ocean. In the Moscow studio, Ala Pugachova twirls the sleeves of her white kaftan, lip-syncing her hit song, Pirovishag, or First Step. She flounces her red hair at the camera, and to the thousands of Americans, presumably on the other end. And Korchagin, well, he wants a reaction shot from the director on the American side. And I ask him, what the hell is happening? Show me the reaction of your people watching on the big screen our big star. And there's dead silence. On the California side, things are a total mess. The interpreter Anya Kucharova kept detailed records of this exchange. She notes that Eddie Money had been taped earlier in the day. His performance was then beamed over instead of a live one. That's because US Festival promoter Bill Graham was no longer cooperating with any of the Space Bridge plan. The Soviet transmission only showed up sporadically in California, and Bill Graham refused to announce what it was, so the crowds had no context. So uh, there was some good material, but this good material was totally wasted. It dawned on Pavel Korchagin that he was in serious trouble. Not only had he brought rock musicians into Gosteleradio on the promise of a triumphant broadcast to America, but the triumphant broadcast was not in fact happening. 
Instead, Korchagin was trying to imagine where he'd find work next. The Gosler Radio was the only television uh, authority television company in the whole country, of the whole Soviet Union. And if you get kicked out of there, you kicked out with the, you know, blacklisted. There's no way back. You cannot do anything. You can only go to, you know, to Moskovsky Tavarne railroad station and, you know, unload, you know, these trucks. The kids in the studio audience aren't aware of any of this. And ad hoc American ambassador Jim Hickman is down there dancing, having the time of his life. Well, that's all for now, folks. All our, all our thanks and best wishes to Gust Radio, Soviet Radio and Television, and all of the fantastic cooperation we got from them in the spirit of the US Festival. The amateurs were having a beach ball space bridge party the Gostelarado professionals up in the control room, they were contemplating their own doom. This show totally, 100% failed. But the failure did not mean disaster, because there were higher-level pros in that Soviet control room, too. Korchagin's boss made a smart move and had the folks at Gostelarado's main news program, Vremia, do a little puff piece about the space bridge. Anything what was aired by uh, Vremia was like 100% endorsement by the state. So that's why, you know, we quickly uh, <laughs> engaged, you know, people from this uh, Vremia uh, news show. They came and made the story, and the story was on the air. And after that, everything breathed like, whoo, yeah, we're safe. <laughs> And so this strange and unsatisfactory event was reabsorbed into the steady clockwork of Soviet broadcasting. In the U.S., the first set of space bridges were hardly seen at all or mentioned in the news. American media were much more interested in the fact that Steve Wozniak lost millions on the festival. And despite that, he says he's going to do it all over again in nine months. That's when we return. Chapter 3. A Long, Long Way to Run. November 10th, 1982. Soviet Premier Leonid Brezhnev has died. After 18 years in power, the architect and upholder of the era of stagnation was gone. The joke in Moscow was that someone finally forgot to change his batteries. The man who replaced him, Yuri Andropov, head of the KGB. In March 1983, President Ronald Reagan gave a speech calling the Soviet Union an evil empire. That infuriated Soviet authorities. Later that month, Reagan announced the Strategic Defense Initiative, a plan to destroy nuclear missiles in the air before they reached the U.S., Never mind that critics said Reagan's idea was technically impossible. It was enough to spook the new Soviet leadership. The U.S. president seemed, at least from the outside, to have given up on trying to prevent nuclear war. That there was nothing left for diplomats to do. Track one diplomats, that is. 
Which is why, despite the amateur disaster of the first space bridges, Gos Teleradio is willing to take up the US Festival's invitation to try again. Track two, Diplomacy, take two. The music event of the 80s continues with more, more music. The second US Festival gets underway, Memorial Day weekend, 1983. And more USSR. The entire production is more ambitious, more professional. The Americans know they have to get it right. They bring on top-notch producers to handle the space bridge, and the American producers have a solid phone line to Moscow. And there's more transparency all around. In California, this space bridge mostly takes place in a big tent away from the US Festival stage. The audience is given a program with a picture of a satellite over the globe. The Americans face a huge screen at the front of the tent. It shows the studio at Gostil Radio in Moscow. And there, on the other side, is Jim Hickman, the American from Esalen. Richard Lukens and I are here in Moscow with our Soviet friends. And we'd like to say to you, That's the studio audience in Moscow saying, good morning, America. They're sitting on risers around a central platform. The painted backdrop behind them shows blue skies with light clouds. Over in California, the U.S. moderator is philosopher Sam Keen, who sets the tone. There are those who fear contact, but our technological creativity has made it inevitable. Our media now places us in a one global nervous system. Rusty Schweikert, the astronaut, sits on stage with Keen. Now Schweikert faces the camera, his smile beamed via satellite to the Soviets, especially to a person he recognizes, Vitaly Sevastyanov, a cosmonaut. I'm delighted to be part of this program today. It's good to see you again. Sevastiana gives a wide smile back and waves. I, I'd really like to ask Vitaly what, what his thoughts were when he was out there floating around in space, because he was out there once too, many years ago. We hear the echo of Schweikert's voice as it bounces across the satellite links to Moscow and then back. Sevastiana's response is translated for the American audience. I saw, looked in my own diary uh, just before coming here. What I wrote was, here I am looking at the earth and looking at the uh, deserts in Asia, the uh, bright picture of the bright desert of Africa, the civilized parts of Europe, the seas, the oceans around Brazil, around Tahiti. I looked at Canada. Everywhere I saw the human trace, trace of civilization, trace of technology, cities, roads, ports, and the rest. But this was not the main thing. Suddenly I realized that life itself is the main thing, the fact that there is life on Earth, something which there is no trace of in space. This feeling of leaving life for the dead, deadness of outer space is something which really attaches us to the Earth.
Sevastanov isn't the only big shot in the Moscow studio. Yevgeny Velikov, one of the Soviet Union's leading nuclear physicists, is also there. And Velikov, he's a big get. Together with the future Nobel laureate Andrei Sakharov, Velikov was one of the fathers of the Soviet nuclear defense program. He'd even been the recipient of the Lenin Prize, the Soviet Union's highest honor, three times. But for all his fame, Velikov had a complicated relationship with the Soviet authorities. His family had suffered under the darkest years of the Soviet regime. And Velikov's earliest memories, their frozen labor camps and the gutted landscape of post-war Stalingrad. And while Velikov would never have Sakharov's fate silenced and placed under house arrest, Velikov was something in between a party loyalist and a dissident. He knew his value to the Soviet Union afforded him a degree of freedom that few enjoyed. Velikov had agreed to the space bridge because he hoped to talk to Steve Wozniak and learn about Apple's new groundbreaking computers. He knew the Soviet's own computing technology was nowhere near what Apple was pioneering. And so Velikov is waiting for his chance to engage with Wozniak when, over in California, Sam Keen jumps in with a question. Do politicians dare talk directly to each other? Could they stand it? As the Soviet panel takes in the translation, Velikov suddenly leans forward towards the screen and starts to speak. We hear his words translated for the American audience. Uh, I would like to say that today, we're not only talking about the fact that we can talk about another, we're actually doing it. And this shows in our conversation that we uh, conquered a very terrible enemy, and at the same time, uh, another enemy arose, which, who unfortunately is still here with us. This is nuclear weaponry. Sometimes it seems to us that these are muscles. Actually, they aren't muscles. This is really a cancer, and we have to perform an operation as quickly as possible to liberate ourselves from this cancer. In order to the American audience leaps to its feet in a sustained ovation, and Velikov's mouth falls slightly agape. Even now, in his 80s and slowed by a recent stroke, Velikov still seems surprised when we watch the speech together on my laptop. He can't quite explain what prompted him to speak out. It was spontaneous, he says. Yet there he was, the Soviet Union's leading nuclear physicist, denouncing the very weapons he'd helped create. When he said that, everybody just gasped, burst into tears. I mean, I, I can't even explain what it felt like to have a, a Russian tell us that they do not want nuclear war, that they'll do everything to make, to make it not happen. Public television producer Evelyn Messenger was helping produce the event in California. Maybe we're just naive, 
but it was so moving and the whole room was just electrified. The exchanges were intense and powerful. The gulf between American and Soviet citizens had been space-bridged. Two months after the success of the second US Festival, another space bridge was set up. This time between studio audiences in Goss, Colorado and Moscow, and a San Diego auditorium. Moscow calling San Diego. And as with the second US Festival space bridge, the Soviet moderator is a journalist named Vladimir Posner. Hi, Volodya. Michael, I can hear you perfectly. Posner spent his childhood in New York, and as you can hear, he speaks English without a trace of a Russian accent. Hi, can you see me? Posner's co-host is a professor of psychology and communication at the University of California at San Diego, a guy named Mike Cole. Okay. Mike Cole is a friend of Posner's from his days in Moscow studying Soviet psychology. And this time, the audience isn't a bunch of college-age rock music fans. This space bridge is connecting kids. People are born with very common, different experiences, like Soviet citizens and Americans. And how do you create the common experience that they can look at so that then they can judge it, and then you can judge them? After the shock of seeing each other, the Soviet and American kids all settle in to watch a bunch of cartoons together and film clips like this one, Christopher Reeve as the prince who awakens Bernadette Peters' Sleeping Beauty. my dream. We see the faces of children in both audiences, staring in anticipation of the kiss. In the close-ups, it's impossible to tell which kids are Soviet and which are Americans. I kept you. The film clip ends, and then suddenly, there in the San Diego studio is the director, actress Shelley Duvall. I have a question for Shelley. What do you like to play, good characters or bad characters? You mean me? <laughs> I like to play good characters for the most part, but it's always fun to get dressed up like a wicked witch and really just go wild with a part. It's fun. Okay. It's a challenge. It's different. This is mild after-school special stuff. A bit boring and maybe forgettable. But boring and forgettable is what the U.S. and USSR needed from each other in 1983. Low stakes and ordinary. Just regular people, kids, watching movies, no talk of bombs, or evil empires, or the end of the world. Look, we have exactly three minutes left at this point. So look, what I suggest we do now is we can all join in a song together. We're going to try to sing it in English. We hope you know it. Because if you don't, then you can sing something in Russian for us. If not now, then next time. There wouldn't be a next time. UC San Diego did have another space bridge, with Posner set up for September. But it got canceled. 
The United Nations Security Council met in emergency session this afternoon with South Korea demanding an On September 3rd, a Soviet missile downed a Korean air passenger jet that strayed into Soviet airspace. All 269 passengers died, including several children and Georgia Congressman Larry McDonald. As a crowd of several hundred Korean Americans burned the Soviet flag outside the United Nations, demanding the Security Council condemn Moscow, Later that fall, NATO war games in Europe so alarmed the Andropov regime that the Soviets came as close as they ever have to authorizing a nuclear attack. Add to that, Soviet embassy employees in the U.S. were seeing trailers on TV for an upcoming film about a nuclear attack on Middle America. The day after, to air on ABC, November 20th, 1983. The Politburo thought the film looked like anti-Soviet propaganda. American hardliners said it looked like pro-Soviet propaganda. But whatever it was, just the trailer alone cast a dark shadow across the already dark fall of 1983. But if we think a good way to end this would be in music. So if you have nothing against The bright optimism of the first Space Bridges felt like a distant memory. In the fall of 1983, Track 1 diplomacy with the USSR was on life support. Track 2 was just a fragile experiment. But the day after, that could bring us back to, well, no one knew. The day after the day after. That's next time on Space Bridge. Space Bridge is a production of Showcase from PRX's Radiotopia. It's produced by Julia Barton. And Charles Maines, with Julia Alsop, Samira Tazari, DJ Kashmir, and Paulus Van Horn. Sam Greenspan is our editor. Our Russian content partner is Arzamas Academy. Music by Andrei Konovalov, Rombix, and Griffin Jennings. Graphic design by Dennis Landon. Julie Shapiro is the executive producer of Radiotopia. Descript provided tape transcription. Special thanks to the Carnegie Corporation of New York. 
And special thanks to Andrei Radionov and Boris Tikhomirov for music sprinkled throughout this episode. We came across a copy of their seminal 80s electronic LP, Pulse One, while working on Space Bridge. I don't want to speak for Julia here, but as a wise man once said, I think I'm in love.